And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. While most of us were celebrating a new year, Congressman Jamie Raskin and his family were marking a horrific memory, the one-year anniversary of the death by suicide of his beloved son, Tommy. A few days after that tragedy, Raskin found himself amid the bedlam of an insurrection on Capitol Hill, which led to his lead role in the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Congressman Raskin, who is currently a member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, has written a searing memoir of his personal and public traumas called Unthinkable, and indeed they were. I sat down with him this week to explore those stories. And let me add, as we do from time to time, for those who are suffering with depression, who are dealing with suicidal thoughts, please reach out for help. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. And now, my conversation with Congressman Jamie Raskin. Congressman Jamie Raskin, it's so so good to see you. Normally, I would say to my guest, the first episode of the year, I'd say Happy New Year. This must have been a really tough New Year for you and your family, the anniversary of the passing of your son, and leading right into the mayhem of the of, of January sixth, in which you were to which you were exposed, and some family members were exposed. Tell me how you're doing. Well, thank you, David, for having me and for saying that. It's been a tough uh, several days here for Sarah and me and our daughters, Hannah and Tabitha and Hank and Ryan and, you know, our whole extended family. It's just very tough. It is a wrenching loss for us not to have Tommy with us. You know, he was just the life of the party and a totally ebullient and hysterically funny and brilliant young man. And um Our life is uh, poorer without him. You've written this very, very poignant and powerful book called Unthinkable, and it's really a saga of of love and trauma, and it's love and trauma in two parts, love for your beloved son, uh, who you lost to, uh, to suicide a year ago, and love for democracy, to which you've devoted your life, and uh, and the trauma of the events that uh, that followed, in which you were deeply involved. I want to talk about all of that, but I want to set the stage by talking a little bit about your extraordinary family history. You, like I, come from an immigrant, a Jewish immigrant family, and they all migrated to the Midwest. We have a new family Zoom uh, environment with like a couple hundred people who get together, and most of them are people who grew up in the Midwest. Of course, I was born on the East Coast and have spent most of my life in Maryland or in D.C. Um, But my grandfather, Benjamin, after whom I was named, uh, was a plumber. And he was one of, um, I think it was 10 children. There were eight sons and two daughters. They were very politically active in the Midwest. And it was the same thing with my mother's family. They were from Minnesota and my maternal grandfather was the first Jewish person ever elected to the Minnesota legislature. But on my dad's side in Wisconsin, there were union organizers, there were Milwaukee City Corporation councils, judges, a sainted judge who was my great uncle named Max Raskin. So uh, yes. I wish I knew these people better, but I, I met them all several times. But unfortunately, um, the, the East Coast side of my family was a little bit renegade. Yeah, Max uh, Raskin was kind of a legend in Milwaukee. Uh, he was elected the city attorney. He was a judge uh, there, um, involved in socialist politics, which was sort of the norm in Milwaukee uh, at that time. Mayors and, and and other elected officials. But your dad is such an interesting character. Um, started as a musician, went to Juilliard, ended up at law school, much like you ended up at law school primarily to figure out how to use law as an instrument of progressive change, uh, wound up in the Kennedy White House as a national security 
aide to McGeorge Bundy, who was the national security advisor, and then split with the administration over Vietnam. Uh, you were a toddler uh, at that time, but he was sort of a, a an, icon, an icon of the anti-war movement in the left. Yeah, uh, he co-founded the Institute for Policy Studies, which was one of the first think tanks. I think it was certainly the first liberal progressive think tank. Um, but he was indicted in 1968 um, in the so-called Boston Five or Dr. Spock conspiracy trial with Dr. Benjamin Spock and William Sloan Coffin and two mm -hmm. other people. And I tell that story, which had a formative impression um, in my childhood in the book. Um, you know, it was a very scary thing for a, uh, you know, a five or six year old kid to go through to know that his dad was on trial and might be going away for several years to prison. And and you were aware of that. You were probably about six then. So you you were you had enough consciousness to know this could be really bad. Yeah. And I tell the story that my mom always told us about how I asked our doctor, Dr. Washington, who was some kind of lineal descendant of George Washington. I had asked him, I said, did you know that my dad was in trouble and was, I think I said, was arrested, but he might go to jail. And then I asked him, was, was my dad a good guy or a bad guy? Because I, you know, I didn't know what that meant to be yeah. facing jail. And he said, your dad is, is the best that we got, kid, you know. So, uh, yeah. And we should point out that the indictment was for uh, aiding and abetting young people who wanted to avoid the draft. Conspiracy to aid and abet draft evasion. Yeah. And my dad never struck the pose of a civil disobedient. He said that the war was an illegal war. It had never been declared by Congress. It was in violation of the Geneva Conventions. And one of their lawyers was Telford Taylor, of mm -hmm. course, the Nuremberg prosecutor. Yes. And, and then they made the argument, or my dad very strongly made the argument that they were citizens standing up for the law against a government that uh, was betraying the Constitution and the law. And my dad was the only one of the five uh, acquitted. The other four were convicted and he was acquitted. And that led to his famous statement that was quoted in the New York Times. Yes. <laughs> they asked how he felt. And he said, um, he said, I feel like demanding a retrial. Because yeah. he, he didn't want to abandon. Did him. the others not make the same argument? What what was it that caused him to uh, be acquitted and the others to be convicted? Just out of curiosity. Well, um, I think my dad, if I'm not mistaken, was the only one who was a lawyer. Uh, he had gone to the University of Chicago Law School, but he wasn't yes, a practicing fine, fine institution, by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, my dad loved University of Chicago and um, and a bunch of the law professors there, but he. My dad went to law school with the idea of figuring out how to use the law as an instrument for ending war. Um, and, you know, he, he was looking at the nightmare of world, the two world wars, World War II, World War II, World War I, and how to control state violence uh, and genocide in violation of people's human rights. That's why he was there. And so he had a very profound critique of what was taking place in the Vietnam War, and he spelled it all out. And I think that um, the the legalism of it, the force of his articulation of these legal values probably convinced that jury, um, if not of the strength of his case, at least that he was not trying to violate the law. He was not trying to commit a crime. Yeah, I wonder when, I wonder when you talk about using the law to uh to avert conflict, I wonder how he'd feel today, you know, as he, as you look around the world and uh, the sense of, uh, of strain on global institutions and uh, systems that were set up after World War II to avert that. But that's a discussion uh, for another day. But how did all that affect you? How did you, because you sort of followed in his path. You you went to law school, I suspect, without knowing, not with any intention of actually going to a law firm and, uh, you know, drafting corporate agreements. Uh, so so tell me what it was like growing up in the shadow of of a, a, of a dad who was such a prominent figure in 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 the public debate. Well. 
you know, my dad used to say to us, when everything looks hopeless, you're the hope. So we grew up with this profound sense of responsibility for our social context and what was happening. And if things look bad, that can't be a cause for despondency and retreat. It's got to be a cause to get engaged and to go to the problem and try to try to solve it. Um, and, you know, my, my dad, I think, believed very strongly that the law could be an instrument of human liberation and promotion of well-being of people, just like it could be a, an instrument of repression and authoritarianism. And I think that was his basic sense of most social institutions. Mm -hmm. I mean, religion can be uh, a great spiritual guide and emancipator for people, and it can also be an absolute nightmare and a cover for child abuse and exploitation. And it's true of every social institution. So the question is, what are we going to make of it? At what point in your life did you say, you know what, I, I, I want to walk in those, I want to walk that path, I want to live that life? I decided I wanted to become a professor of constitutional law. I fell under the spell of Lawrence Tribe when I was at Harvard Law School. You wouldn't be the only one, but yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I also met my wife, Sarah, in his class. Mm -hmm. So that, that course changed my life in a lot of ways. We should, we should just point out she is a, uh, a figure of, of great importance in her own right as a very prominent expert on banking regulation and as a banking regulator. And apparently, though I know you can't answer this, uh, maybe on her way back into uh, uh, government uh, at the Fed to uh, to oversee banking regulation. But I won't put you on the spot there. Yeah. Get, you get you in trouble at home. <laughs> but no, I was just answering the question about my dad. Um, I think uh, my dad was proud of all four of his children. And I think he imbued in us the, the sense that um, we should make ourselves productive in the interests of the larger community. And um, uh, I always felt within me, although I have a basically academic temperament and I love teaching and I love writing and reading more than anything. And I think a university is the coolest thing in the world. Um, I always had the sense that I did have a political instinct in me and that I, I had some political blood running in my veins from all of these people who had been legislators yes. and activists. And so when the moment arrived, I decided I was going to run for the state Senate here in Maryland, uh, where I've spent most of my life. One of the wonderful stories in your book is about Tommy and his participation in that first campaign of yours. He was, what, 11 years old at the time? Yeah. 10 and, uh, and I loved the story about you, you were taking on a, uh, in, 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 you know, a, a 32 year incumbent. incumbent. Right. And, and someone uh, was lecturing you on how you can't beat the machine. T tell that story. So we were being told repeatedly, you can't beat the machine. And uh, Tommy always wanted to come with me and be part of this. And uh, so at one point he said to somebody, well, who is the machine? And then um, the guy named three or four people. And Tommy said, but that's three or four people. There are 175,000 people who live in our district. And it was just the greatest lesson in one person, one vote democracy. An 11-year-old boy. I mean, <laughs> yeah. what, a, what a revelation uh, that was. But that's who he was. Tell, tell me, uh, tell me about, about Tommy. Tommy was like a thoroughbred in terms of his natural political genius. I mean, he was like a, a David Axelrod kind of figure in terms well, of yeah, his ability to higher to than that, but, <laughs> understand the political dynamics of a particular situation. But, um, and, and that was ingenious. But there was a, there's another story I told uh, in the book where it was, it was a poignant moment between the two of us because he... He basically said, you know, I couldn't do what you do because I think he, well, I took him to Annapolis one day and he realized the levels of at least insincerity, if not hypocrisy and just BS that we have to deal with in politics as a matter of course, to the point where I hadn't even been noticing it because it's just such a normal part of what politicians do. And for Tommy, he felt much more urgency and intensity about his moral and political passions. Uh, I have to admit than I did, because I'm willing to go through a legislative process, which does involve so much 
procedural formality and back and forth and niceties when things are working well and violence when they're not. Um, and Tommy wanted to do the most good all the time. He got involved at the end of his life in a, a group called Effective Altruism. And anytime he made money, like he was when he was a law student at Harvard, he was teaching Harvard undergrads as a section leader. And he earned a modest salary for that, but he gave all the money away to groups like Give Directly, which channeled the money directly to poor people. And he would do the same with human rights groups, Amnesty International, animal rights and welfare groups. I mean, that was his level of intensity about it. So he saw the kind of thing that I do going to work every day on Capitol Hill and committee meetings and subcommittee meetings as way too slow and indirect. Yeah, you know, I find, you know, I uh, am the director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. And um, I think this is one of the great struggles because I'm surrounded by these incredibly idealistic young people who just want to make a difference, make a difference in the lives of people who need help, make a difference in the lives of the world. And they look at the political system and it seems cumbersome and riddled with, as you say, insincerity and uh, and they they avert their eyes. And that's a that's a that's a problem. That's a problem for us. It's a challenge to those of us who are on the inside of legislative institutions and political institutions to answer the moral urgency that the kids feel because they're living in the shadow of climate change. And so they don't have time for a lot of the formality and the nonsense and the self-flattery that take place in normal political circles. And uh, right on for them. Uh, They're demanding a lot more of us. And I, I see that in my younger colleagues, like AOC. Uh, They have a great sense of urgency, but they also still have a lot to learn from those of us who are middle-aged and those who are older. So uh, it's going to take all of us to get through the nightmares we're in. So Tommy, as you describe him, had this boundless compassion, incredible intellect, good humor, um, but a a sensitivity that was... uh, that was that was really difficult uh, for him. That he he took things harder, and uh, and te- and and ultimately he he struggled with depression. When did when did it become apparent to you and and Sarah that that Tommy had real struggles? Well, it was later on in college when it really evidenced. But as you say, he was intensely morally attuned and emotionally attuned from a super young age. And um, I don't know that we've figured out what the causal relationship is between depression and that kind of extraordinary moral and empathic sensibility. Um, But in the process of talking to people about the book, I'm hearing more and more from people about those in their families or even particular interviewers who say, I also feel the pain of others in a radically amplified way, and I also suffer from depression. So there might even be something scientific to it, you know, that there might be some kind of biological basis. But Tommy did, I think, distinguish between his moral and political passions and his depression. I think he was willing to see it as an illness, but uh, it just overcame him. It was staggering towards the end. It was anguishing to read about. Tell me about that, about the events leading up to it. And, and I should say, I know I wrote a memoir myself, as, as I think I wrote to you at the time. Uh, I lost my, my dad to, to suicide, and so many of the things you wrote were familiar to me. It's different when you're the child and not the parent, but some of the things are very similar. Um, so, but, but tell me about how this unfolded? Well, forgive me, I don't want to go into too much detail because I do lose my composure if I do that. Um, but it's all in the book for people who, who want to know those details. But, yeah. uh, you know, I would just say um, that everything's connected. And the, the COVID-19 period was hell on young people. And Tommy was one of them. It was just profoundly isolating and demoralizing as it still is in some ways. And so 
when we talk about just the radical irresponsibility and recklessness of the Trump administration, it wasn't um, just in plunging us into a failed state approach to public health where you give people lies and you deny what's going on and you hawk fake medical cures and so on. Um, it puts people in danger. You know, a failed state is a state that can't deliver the basic goods of existence to its people. And one of those goods is security against disease. And how do we get to a point in America where public health measures are considered a partisan thing? For the life of me, I will never understand how they did, did that to us. And you've got Trump's own COVID-19 advisor, Deborah Burke, saying that we unnecessarily lost hundreds of thousands of people. And we're still in this nightmare. And suicide, the incidence of suicide and suicide attempts among young people uh, were up uh, dramatically and have been up uh, during this Depression period. is up. Anxiety is up. And not just among people Tommy's age in their 20s and teens, but even kids are experiencing that. I mean, childhood, uh, I think that the child, the children's psychiatrists have declared a national emergency in terms of the emotional and mental well-being of kids. I mean, if we were in an authoritarian society, the kind of society that Donald Trump wants, that wouldn't be a big deal because who cares about the population? It's all about the people at the top. I mean, Donald Trump had 50 doctors when he got himself COVID-19 and became a one-man super spreader. He, he was flown around in helicopters. So who cares about everybody else? But if you want a real democracy, you've got to invest in the emotional and mental and physical health of the people because it's all about self-government and getting everybody involved in their towns and their cities and in their states and at the national level and in civic service and in national service and so on. Uh, I mean, that, that's what a democracy is. I can imagine people listening and saying, it, is he blaming Donald Trump for the loss of his child? No, and I understand that. And I, and I, I, I don't blame him. Everybody is on a singular path in terms of his or her own emotional and mental and physical health. But I will say that everybody's situation also exists in a social context. Um, and I don't, I don't want to run away from that. Um, I think that I saw Tommy's, um, I saw his, I saw everything go downhill in that year. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I didn't talk about my father's death for 30 years uh, publicly, and I'm embarrassed to say that. Because I realized that I didn't talk about it because there's so much stigma associated with mental illness and, and, and suicide. And it was just that, just because of that, that I think he didn't seek the help that he perhaps uh, should have. Uh, and so now, I, I mean, I, I, I think we have an obligation to talk about mental illness uh, for what it is, which is... Uh, which is an illness, but you know, you when you write, and I, I don't want to walk you through the details for the reasons that you said. You were home alone with your son. You found your son, and the things that ran through your head are the things that everyone who's lost a loved one. You think back and you say, "What did I miss? What did I miss? What were the signs? What could I have done?" Well, and in hindsight, of course, with hindsight bias, it looks perfectly obvious. And so I felt like a complete idiot. Yeah. But the stigma thing, I think, should be gone. We've got to talk about this. And if you're talking about a condition like depression that affects 60 or 70 million people, I mean, where is the stigma in mm -hmm. that? That can't be a stigma. And we don't have stigma. At least I hope we don't have stigma anymore for cancer. Uh, we don't have stigma for heart disease. I mean, these are just ailments that afflict 
humanity. And so we're working on them. And so we need the investment in science. I'm proud that I represent uh, the great scientists at NIH and the great scientists at NOAA. But of course, we're living in a time where scientists are under attack. And, you know, they're accused of fake news and deep state bias and all of this nonsense. You speak about cancer victims. You, you You were a cancer patient in your mid 40s pretty serious uh, yes. colorectal cancer were there times when you when you feared that you weren't going to make it that you wouldn't see your kids grow up yes i was very afraid that i would not see hannah graduate from high school or tommy graduate from high school or tabitha graduate from high school i was very afraid i wouldn't see them get married and i was terrified of it and um But I record in the book that as terrible as it was, I never wanted to die. On the contrary, I just wanted to live. And so that's why this has been such a puzzle and continues to be such a puzzle for me because uh, I've never suffered from depression. So I, I don't know what it means to be in a situation where death seems like an escape. I mean, yeah. I had a little episode when I was uh, under an MRI machine where I experienced intense claustrophobia uh, one one day, and it was only for 37 minutes, but I really felt desperate and trapped, and I wanted to get out. And that was the closest I could ever come to having an inkling of what Tommy was going through, because my will to live was so strong. I think the human will to live is so strong that for people to go in the other direction means they are really suffering. They're in deep pain and anguish. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good analogy because, uh, you know, the sense of it that I have is that you're you're trapped in a long, dark tunnel and there's no light on either end and you don't see any way out. But, to you know, I've, I've thought about it often over the last decades, uh, the, 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 you know, the pain that the pain that one must feel to to be in that position and to be you, you wrote in the book that. Tommy obviously planned this, planned it for when your wife was away, planned it when he was alone. My dad called me two weeks in advance of his death, and he said, you know, I know now that you and your sister are going to do really well, and I'm really proud of you. It was just out of the blue. And it's like I realized he was calling to say goodbye. And um, like you and like you wrote, I mean— you you say you think of all the things you would have liked to have said and you and you never got a chance to say um so you just a few days later Jamie you uh you did your duty and you appeared uh in congress to certify uh the election how did you find the how did you find the strength to to do that you had just uh you just laid your son to rest the day before um and now you were headed to the capitol and was it was it a relief to bury yourself in that or was it you know i I would think it must have been incredibly hard well yeah um hannah and tabitha and other members of my family were trying to convince me not to do it um and i just said it's a constitutional duty um, I mean, it's right there in the Constitution, in the 12th Amendment. And um, Speaker Pelosi had asked me to be one of the representatives of the majority answering uh, what we anticipated to be GOP objections to the certification of electors from particular states. Um, and we also, you'll recall, David, had a very slender majority in the House. And there were members of our caucus who were sick or who had other kinds of problems and there was COVID-19 and I just did not want to add to the speaker's woes in any way and I felt a responsibility to be there so that's how I convinced Tabitha and Hank Hannah's husband to come with me instead and they said Donald Trump <laughs> yeah. is inviting all these people to Washington is it going to be safe and I said way too cavalierly obviously uh, of course, it'll be safe. We'll be in the Capitol. And I remember having an image in my head when I said that of a day, June 2nd, when Black Lives Matter came to 
the Capitol. And it was the day after William Barr and Trump had unleashed that paramilitary police riot against the protesters in Lafayette Square to clear a path for him to go over to the St. John's Episcopal Episcopal Church. But on that day, June 2nd, there was a phalanx of National Guardsmen and women who were up on the Capitol steps armed. And I just had that image in my mind thinking, well, you know, if it really got out of hand, we would just have the guard there. I want to get back to the narrative, but I have to ask you this question since you raised this. You, you're now on the select committee examining the events of January 6th. You led the impeachment inquiry, but you only had a few weeks to, uh, to, to investigate uh, and, and put your case together. What have you learned about why the National Guard wasn't deployed? Some would argue that, well, they were, there was a sensitivity because they were attacked for being so present when Black Lives Matter was there. But what, what do you believe happened? Well, I, you know, I've got to reserve final judgment on that because we don't have the complete story yet. And it's definitely one of the stories that we need to tell when we get into hearings, I hope, in February and then to write our report later in the spring, certainly before the summer. You know, the one thing that struck me from the beginning were the reports that there were uh, Department of Defense officials who had been stationed there by Donald Trump who were opposing the, quote, optics of having National Guard there. And of course, there's this tantalizing text uh, released that went to... Mark Meadows had one. Yeah. Say the, the the text right with Meadows saying something to the effect of uh, the National Guard will be there to protect the Trump people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you've asked, I think, one of the major mysteries, and we're going to unravel it. But I don't want to get too much more deeply into it because I just don't know yet. So you're in the chamber. You're you're making your arguments. You get a you get embraced on a bipartisan basis when you thank people for their kindness. Uh, relative to your loss, but then uh, you're in the proceeding and all hell breaks loose. You're told to get your gas masks. Now, you point out your your daughter, uh, Tabitha, and your son-in-law, Hank, they went to the Capitol with you. Um, you thought you were helping them out. They, they, you, you said in retrospect, they were there to help to support you. And Tabitha um, thought I, I shouldn't be alone is the bottom line. But you were separated because you were in the chamber. They were somewhere else. You just lost your son. Were there moments? I know you said you didn't have any fear for yourself. Were there moments of panic where you said to yourself, where, where, where is, where is Tabitha? Where's Hank? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was my, my first concern. And uh, I was terrified to be separated from them. Uh, I established that they were back in Steny Hoyer's little Capitol Hill office. Um, I mean, Capitol guarded office. by your chief of staff with a uh, fire poker, apparently uh, yeah. ready to ready to clobber anybody who came in. Yes. Tabitha said that uh, Julie Tagan had gotten her filly on and she was, uh, you know, <laughs> ready to mix it up. But they, they barricaded themselves in. They pushed the furniture up against the door and they hid under the desk. And of course, everybody's chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, or we want Trump outside and they're banging on all the doors so it was a scary thing for them as i mentioned you were the, you were chosen as the lead the, the manager for the impeachment of president the second impeachment of, of president trump which was you know and this is a subjective judgment but i think most people would agree a very well presented case put together in a short period of time you were working 24/7 on that again was it cathartic was it a way to plunge yourself into something. How much did Tommy figure into your passion to get this done? He was central to it. I, I felt like I was channeling my grief um, over the loss of Tommy into this, but I felt him with me literally in my heart and in my chest the whole time. Um, and um, I was completely shocked when Speaker Pelosi asked me to do it because I was really a wreck. I mean, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. Everybody was telling me I was, you know, losing all of this weight. I looked gaunt and so on. And the speaker called me and said, I'd like you to be on the the 
team of impeachment managers. And I said, of course, I will. Of course, I will do that. And then she said, and I'd like you to be the lead impeachment manager. And I also agreed to that immediately. But I realized soon thereafter, she had thrown me a lifeline because I wasn't sure if I could ever do anything again. I mean, when the day we lost Tommy, I was essentially catatonic, sitting in a chair, just repeating over and over again, I've lost my son, I've lost my boy, Um, my life is over for hours. So she threw me a lifeline because she said, we need you. Do you think she knew that she was throwing you a lifeline? I don't know. I mean, I'm very close to the speaker, or at least Mm -hmm. I like to think I'm close to the speaker. And, um, you know, she she comes to me about constitutional stuff and we talk about constitutional law. I mean, everybody in Congress knows sort of one thing. And if you're in a key position like Speaker Pelosi, you begin to identify people with particular issues or particular expertise they can help you on, you know. She also has a de facto PhD in psychology, which you need to have to lead that unruly group. So uh, she does indeed. I mean, I think she was really feeling out whether one, I was up to it, and two, whether Sarah and the girls were okay with it. And she kept insisting that I call them to make sure that it was all right with them and that it would be okay. And luckily, I tell the story, I had withdrawn from presenting the case in the rules committee that day, which they didn't want me to do because people forget that. After January 6th, it was still a very turbulent, surly, and unstable environment. I mean, all of these people were still out there. There were very few arrests made. So you had Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and Three Percenters out there, and they had a taste of power. They almost knocked over the U.S. government and stolen a presidential election. Um, And they were calling for a return engagement on January 20th. Remember, there was a lot of fear about what was going to happen at the inauguration. So it was still a very nervous environment. And, um, you know, I told the girls I wasn't going to make the presentation in the rules committee, but the speaker had asked me to be the lead manager and um, I wanted to do it. And I felt like this was the right thing for our family and it was the right thing for the country. And I also said that I think that Tommy um, will be with me and in my heart and in my mind the entire time. So as I mentioned earlier, you had very little time to prepare. You guys delivered a very robust case. Now that you've taken testimony from 300 people and you've access to thousands of documents that you didn't have uh, when you were doing this, what do you know now that you didn't know then? Well, remember, our task was relatively discreet in the impeachment trial. It was to prove that Donald Trump had incited violent insurrection against Mm -hmm. the government. That was one guy and one crime. And now the task for the January 6th Select Committee is to study the entire sequence of events, how it happened, why it happened, who was behind it, who paid for it, and what do we need to do to prevent it in the future. But you'll recall that a critical moment in the trial was when we got the statement of Jamie Herrera Butler entered Mm -hmm. on a stipulated basis, which told the story that Kevin McCarthy had recited about calling Donald Trump to urge him essentially to call off the dogs and Trump saying, well, maybe they're just more interested in a fair election than you are, Kevin, Mm -hmm. and then them having testy words back and forth. But that was just the tip of the iceberg, we know now there were tons of communications like that with Republican leaders and Fox News personalities, people calling in saying, you're going to destroy everything. You're going to ruin your whole legacy, Uh, which, of course, is a little bit amusing to those of us who think his legacy began and ends with that kind of uh, trauma and uh, oppression. But regardless, they were saying, you're going to throw everything away. You're going to squander all of your great accomplishments. Um, We have dozens of communications like that now. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. So the National Guard issue is one question that I raised earlier. The other is this 187 minutes when the president was essentially mute as uh, these uh, uh, insurrectionists went marauding through the Capitol. 
Um, do you do you have a you, you had said at one time that you thought the theory was that uh, chaos would reign? He could invoke some sort of uh, martial law uh, and uh, delay uh, uh, the counting of the of the votes. Um, has that theory been supported by the things that you've learned? Or yeah, I think. Well, here's my best ability to discern method in all the madness. There were three essential rings of activity, and the outer ring was a mass demonstration called for a wild protest by Donald Trump. And that uh, presidential protest turned into a riot. The middle ring of activity was the realm of the insurrection, and that was the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the militia groups, the First Amendment uh, Praetorian, the QAnon networks, all of the organized groups that had been training for this moment were there. And uh, they had um, taken quite a ride from Charlottesville 2017 Unite the Right rally because they'd gone from 500 to several thousand. And they were the stormtrooper vanguard of a march of tens of thousands of people on the U.S. Capitol. But at the very center of it was the ring of the coup. And the coup is an odd word in the American political lexicon because uh, we don't have experience with coups. And we think of coups as something that take place against a president. But this was a coup executed by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. And after Trump lost the election, the whole political agenda was to overthrow Joe Biden's 306 electoral college votes. And one way of doing it was to go to GOP-controlled legislatures and try to get them to nullify the popular vote and just install Trump electoral college slates. And to their great credit, uh, many of the Republican legislatures refused to do that, like in Michigan and uh, Wisconsin. Then he went to election officials like Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia uh, to just get him to find 11,781 votes. There were overtures made to more than 30 different election officials in that way to see if they could change the count. And when all of that failed, and when these people who are in many cases, unsung hero constitutional patriots, when these people did the right thing, then everything came down to let's get Mike Pence to declare unprecedented powers to simply nullify electoral college slates. We want him to, quote, return the electors to the state capitals in Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, thereby lowering Joe Biden below 270, and under the terms of the 12th Amendment, kicking the contest immediately into the House of Representatives yeah. for a so-called contingent election. And why did they want that, even though Pelosi was in charge with a bunch of Democrats? Because under a contingent election, we don't vote one member, one vote. We vote one state, one vote. And after the 2020 congressionals, they had 27 state delegations. We had 22, and one Pennsylvania was tied right down the middle. And even if the at-large rep from Wyoming, Liz Cheney, defected, they still had 26 votes in the bag. And if they could just get it kicked over there, boom, they take the vote. Trump is president. And at that point, he invokes the Insurrection Act, calls out the National Guard or whomever to put down all of the chaos and insurrection that he had unleashed upon us. So my question is, why was he sitting? What was he doing in those 187 minutes why didn't he act? And do you have a cl more clarity on that? We're gaining a little bit more clarity. I mean, we've had overwhelming cooperation and participation from these witnesses, but the closer you get to Donald Trump, the more likely you're about you're going to find a recalcitrant witness like Steve Bannon or Mark Meadows. Nonetheless, we are getting more and more information, but that's the critical thing. I mean, they were clearly trying to turn up the heat on Vice President Pence. And if they could just convince him uh, to do it, they'd be able to kick the election into the House and they were ready to go. And they thought by having people outside chanting, hang Mike Pence, that that would be persuasive? Well, that's the problem. You know, I believe that some of the coup plotters felt like the insurrection got out of hand. The idea was to have an insurrection that would help to exert coercive leverage over 
Pence, but I think it was so extreme and they had unleashed such cannibalistic impulses in the extremist elements that had arrived that it created a backlash in the country and it made people afraid, including a lot of Republicans. Now, Steve Bannon and the gang were ready even when we went back into session after our four or five hour break. Those people were still ready to push the coup and to try to get Pence to reject these electoral college votes and get the election thrown into the House. I think that that's what Trump was waiting for. Had they used every conceivable means of leverage over Mike Pence to pull a rabbit out of the hat. You mentioned Republicans being scared, but you know, we just did another poll this weekend in the Washington Post. Large numbers of Republicans have bought into the the big lie, the idea that the election was stolen, that it was fraudulent, uh, that somehow uh, uh, that Biden is an illegitimate uh, president. Um, What does that tell you? Um, Well, it tells us that the human mind is as frail an instrument as it was in the 20th century when these totalitarian tactics were originally perfected by fascist and Nazi parties. I mean, it was all about telling big lies, indoctrinating the masses with just patently false things, but through the force of repetition, getting them to believe it. And then the act of belief becomes uh, an exercise of political loyalty and allegiance rather than a statement about reality. What does that say about the fragility of our democracy? Well, it's a real problem with social media because we've increased the speed at which you can give people facts and evidence, but we've also radically increased the speed at which you can tell people lies and indoctrinate them. You know, the social media component of this is really important. And that's another thing that we have to look at and we have to report to the American people about. I mean, there were whistleblowers in Facebook and in Twitter who were saying there's a very dangerous situation uh, developing on January 6th, and they were unable to move anything there. And of course, the model we've got of the social media is that uh, they are just private media entities. They don't have any particular social responsibility. They want to attract as many customers as possible. And Donald Trump, of course, uh, was the hallmark tweeter for Twitter, right? And so they were bending over backwards not to offend him. And a lot of the brass, we think, had the attitude that uh, the election was over and they didn't need to uh, try to exercise any responsibility for anything that was going to happen. But we see the cost of that. So we've got to deal with that reality. Let me ask you um, about your colleagues. Um, you, 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 you famously have tangled and you write about this with Jim Jordan quite a bit. He uh, being on the Judiciary Committee with you. you, you've subpoenaed him. He has not appeared along with another member. Do you believe that he was in you? You talk about coup plotters. Would you do you believe he was one of those people? We saw the email that he sent uh, suggesting a legal stratagem to, that would uh, that that Pence should employ to to disallow electoral votes. Well, I I mean, I can't pronounce on what we're going to end up reporting on and what we're going to do hearings about. But the chair of our committee, uh, the great Benny Thompson, has said, we're going to follow all of the leads. Just because you're a member of Congress doesn't mean that somehow you get uh, immunity from the truth for having participated in um, political coups or insurrectionary activity. So the interesting thing is whether they will end up falling back in the final analysis on what Donald Trump did in the trial, which was basically a First Amendment defense, uh, where, you know, basically Trump said, I have a First Amendment right to incite violent insurrectionary actions against the U.S. government, which is a fairly comedic thing for a president of the United States to say. I mean, you have sworn an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution against all comers, and then suddenly you're inciting a violent insurrection against the government, and you want to act like uh, a guy in a rally that gets out of control saying, well, you know, I, uh, 
I have a right to shout out, you know, burn down City Hall or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, or fire in a crowded theater. Yeah. And, and we, what we said at trial, of course, was he's not like a guy shouting fire in a crowded theater. He's like a fire chief who tells the mob to go burn down the theater. And then when people start calling the fire department to tell them that the theater's on fire, doesn't do anything for more than three hours. What what has all this done to the the house itself as an institution? You've got large numbers of members on the other side who have essentially who are uh, January sixth deniers uh, who experienced you you were there in the chamber with them, and now yeah. because of the political pressures uh, and pressures from Trump uh, feel constrained not to not to uh, acknowledge what they experience. I mean, that too is a terrifying leap into um, fascist politics. I mean, it is a hallmark of fascist politics that um, that recruits and followers are told lies and are expected to not just believe them, but to repeat them and to... But your colleagues don't really believe them, do they? I mean, I'm... Well, that's a good question. I mean, I does Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, does Lauren Boebert, does Jim Jordan, do they believe the things they say? I think at this point they probably do through the sheer force of repetition and by immersing themselves in an alternative propaganda system. If you guys lose the House, which honestly seems very, very possible, if not likely, he will be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Could be Speaker of the House, but he'll, at a minimum, be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. What are the implications of that? Well, (laughs) the whole thing is going to uh, test our constitutional system and test our patience and our resolve as small-D Democrats, um, because they will uh, try to mobilize every um, authoritarian power they have to destroy the Biden administration um, and uh, to go after their perceived enemies and the opponents of Donald Trump. So uh, that will be quite a challenge. But that, to me, underscores the logically prior point, which is we cannot allow them uh, to win the House. And I know there's a lot of fatalism uh, because of the gerrymandering. And uh, we know that- Well, and history, which has- yeah, which is tough for incumbent parties in midterm elections. It, it is tough in general. Uh, at the same time, um, the Democratic Party is the party of democracy, which, by the way, is what FDR used to call us, the democracy. Um, so uh, we are defending the democracy. Uh, Biden beat him by more than 7 million votes. Hillary beat him by more than 3 million votes. We clearly are the party of the majority in the country, but they are... Uh, exercising every point of anti-democratic leverage, like the gerrymandering of our districts, the use of the filibuster, right-wing court packing and judicial activism, and so on. This is what we're up against, a, a whole bag of tricks. You you have made a career of opposing the Electoral College. You, you point out that uh, Trump twice lost the popular vote. George W. Bush lost the popular vote in 2000. Yet there's a kind of constitutional constraints that make the system hard to change. What what reforms can be enacted and must be enacted, in your view, to avert further uh, calamities like the one we saw on, on January uh, first, the Electoral Count Act of 1876? I mean, w- what are the steps that can be taken and will you be able to take them? There are two things. One is we do have to grab the bull by the horns and continue structural reform. And that is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. That was the very first bill I introduced as a state senator back in 2007. And so this is a a coalition of states who agree they will cast their electors for the winner of the national vote once we get 270 electors in the coalition. That is a longer-term solution and, unfortunately, has become very partisan. You're about 100, 100 votes short. Uh, yeah. Around, um, but we are, we are a majority of the way there. But meantime, you're right. We've, we've got to look at what are the practical small reforms we can make to the Electoral Count Act, to the Electoral College process. And this is tough because, again, it's a problem that will run into the brick wall of the filibuster if nothing is done about it. But we could formalize 
the vice president's role as a ministerial and administrative role. We could increase the number of um, members you need voting uh, to uh, ratify an objection to a state's electoral college vote from just a majority in the House to two-thirds or 60%. Or so There are things that we could do structurally to make it more difficult to engage in partisan mischief. The problem is that uh, you can always flip over the hypotheticals in your mind, and I'm not sure that we're fundamentally going to solve the problem of an anti-democratic party, which has positioned itself outside the constitutional order that's attacking our elections through a set of procedural reforms. Because whatever the procedural reforms are, they will try to sweep them out of the way if they get in the path of their taking power. The GOP is now a rule or ruin party. Either they're going to rule all of us and everything, or they're going to ruin our ability to conduct democracy the way that we know it. Yeah, so unthinkable is not just a title about what happened in the past, but also what you fear might happen in the future without vigilance. Let me ask you this final question. Donald Trump, with all that has happened, I mean, nobody who watched that scene on January 6th, I guess nobody who hadn't been paying attention to the past five years uh, would think, well, he certainly can't, uh, he certainly can come back from this. And yet he remains uh, an enormously popular figure in the Republican Party, the front runner for the Republican uh, nomination. Uh, what would it mean for the country if, after all of this, that he was returned to the White House? The political scientists tell us that the the single best indicator of a successful coup is a recently failed coup, because the coup plotters get an up-close and personal diagnosis of the strengths and the weaknesses of the incumbent constitutional structure. So we have not put the coup plotters and the insurrectionists to rest. I mean, they are out there organizing. So it is a very serious problem. Um, and Donald Trump does not accept the basic ligaments of our constitutional structure. And if he were to get back in, you've got to wonder whether we would ever get him or his movement out again. I said final question, but I have an addendum to it, being an old reporter. What do you hope the report of your committee will do? Steve Bannon is holding some extravaganza on his podcast to impugn the work of your committee and extol the patriotism of the people who rioted at the Capitol. What do you hope your report will do that might change the dynamic in the country? I want to make two points here, David. One is that Donald Trump's lawyers at his Senate impeachment trial denounced the insurrection and said that nobody would ever have anything good to say about it and said it was intolerable and unacceptable and so on. And of course, they're disavowing all of that now, but they should at least be forced to contend with that contradiction. When he was trying to get off for what he had done, they tried to distance themselves from uh, the violence. And now that uh, he has narrowly escaped conviction in this 57 to 43 loss in the Senate, he is embracing the violent insurrectionists. But I hope that our committee is able to tell a painstaking story of how we got to this dark moment in American history. And we are able to record in granular detail exactly who did what. We are able to name names. We're able to talk about where the money came from. And we're able to talk about the structural nature of the dangers that are out there. And then we're able to advance recommendations for practical reforms that make sense on everything from the social media to the physical security of the Capitol to the Electoral Count Act and the 12th Amendment and the Electoral College. Um, we've got to respond like democracy-loving Americans who want to make this work because this is our government. This is our country. And our parents and our grandparents and prior generations have fought too hard to throw it all away. For Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows and Dinesh D'Souza and all of the pardoned political criminals like Roger Stone. We've got to put that chapter of American history behind us definitively. 
Congressman Raskin, thanks for your time. And thank you for writing this book. My heart goes out to you and to your family. And uh, Tommy is in our thoughts, and may his memory always be a blessing. Thank you. Thank you for that, David. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.